Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game Is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me are Ricky, Gareth, and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hello. Hi, Steph. The subject of our pod this week is going to be Spurs in the noughties. That means you're going to hear us run through what was probably the most important of transitional periods and saw more turbulence, more change, more excitement, more highs, more lows than even you thought were possible with a Tottenham Hotspur decade. We will hit them all between us. That is guaranteed. But before we get into all that palaver, caper and excitement, let's kick off the pod with this week's intro question. And this week, it is neatly tied in with our main item. Chaps, how did you see in the millennium? Ricky. Me. Well, it wasn't that glamorous, to be honest. I think by the year 2000, I was pretty much clubbed out. Most most of me and my network of friends, we were kind of a bit contrarian on what we should do for the millennium. Um, probably, to be truthful, a bit more aloof, thinking that, you know, we've been to most clubs. I think all the all the mm. clubs that night were massively overpriced, I think, weren't they, Milo? Mm. And yeah, they were. So we thought, well, oh, I sod all that. So we managed to cobble together a nice house party at someone's house in Camberwell, which we did. Uh, it didn't actually go that well, to be honest. It was okay. <laughs> but considering everyone was meant to be so hyped about, you know, oh my God, it's, you know, it's turn of the century. Um, so nothing really much happened. Well, there was one notable event, I think. Luckily, the Mrs. Ricky, the same Mrs. Ricky as, you know, that's still around these days. We've been together for ages. Um, she did the driving duties that night. And I do remember, um, as we came through Pearly Cross on the way home, I had to emergency open the door and chunder out onto the road. And I think that was my, um, and that was my first and only time of being sick on alcohol. And I put that squarely down to the, um, I don't know, we somehow, (laughs) yeah, the Millennium Bug, yeah. (laughs) So I think we got into some kind of serious tequila action and, you know. I just well. hope that our international listeners, whenever Ricky answers these seemingly mundane questions with extraordinary detail, I hope they're writing down all the places and going to their Google Maps and just plotting the journeys because I think they are the most brilliantly English of journeys, Ricky, and they they resonate Thank so you. so clearly. They've got wonderful detail, and I can see the chunder flying out of your mouth as as you describe the moment so so, oh, so yeah, thank you for that's... that wonderful milo i saw you giggling at how clubs are overpriced is this because you were one of the djs fleecing people with a with a millennium uh, dj no i didn't work uh, that night I, perhaps i'm not a big fan of new year's eve i mean I've, I've dj's on new year's eve plenty of times but i'd rather work than be in a club on new year's eve it's it's amateur night it's when all the people who don't go out the rest of the year go out and millennium was amateur night on steroids so i was say as a as a previously i've I've, um i've thought that maybe you ought to have to get a a license to go on new year's eve so during the year you know you you have to go to the pub and behave yourself you know drink a reasonable amount behave yourself and then at the end of the night you'd get a stamp on a little card from the landlord and or landlady and you know if you collect enough of those over the year you'd be allowed out on new year's eve and i might put this forward again uh, as a suggestion as a way to improve it once your son is uh you know leading leading the country uh, having defined what the party <laughs> yeah. is you can join him in uh, how people are allowed to celebrate these institutional days i, I think it's a wonderful I, ticket i've got a very simple manifesto steph it's that that's one of them i want to swap bank holiday mondays for bank holiday fridays um because if you get if you get a bank holiday monday you've got two sundays where if you swap it to a friday you've got two fridays or saturdays it's a far better day to have yeah i'm I'm working on the manifesto and uh, i'll let you all know when it's ready 
but it doesn't really answer the question, does it? Um, I was in Oxford out with a mate in a <laughs> no, in a pub. Uh, yeah, just had a night in the pub, and I think it wasn't quite opposite. There was a there was a art robbery uh, from the gallery in Oxford that night, which was. Kind of, of course there which was. was kind of just across the road from where we were drinking but I, I didn't see anything i didn't see the heist in action so and i've got alibis if anyone's going to point the finger at me again this is a further extension and i wish i just wish sometimes i wish we did these visually for people to see because we're building a we've built over the last year we've built a fascinating map of milo which uh, recently has ramped up to include uh, brothels, bedsits, and now art thievery on the millennium <laughs> across from a supposedly innocent pint in the pub, all the while as he's scribbling away in his notebook, uh, Kaczynski style perhaps, uh, a new manifesto for the government. This is fantastic, and I could not think of a more millennial way for you to see it in, actually. Your legend continues to build. Gareth, top that! Were you art thieving or party to an art thievery with having a boring pint that you deny responsibility? Responsibility for? No, I was acting out my life as a real life in betweener, which I spent most of my teens and twenties doing. <laughs> which one were you? I was, uh, I was probably somewhere between somewhere between Will and Come Simon. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, as we all were, we all were right, but we all wished there was a bit more Jay in us because he was such an such an amusing knob. Yeah. But we all knew a Jay. We anyway. well, yeah, so I, I was a, a mate's house around the corner from ours um, when it sort of dawned on us about half past ten that there were about fifteen of us there and there weren't any girls there at all. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, so, so sort of a splinter group of us decided what we would do is we would walk two miles um, up a very steep hill to where my mate's sister and her friends were spending New Year's Eve at another set of friends' houses. So we we, we went up there and then had to run down the hill to get back again for um, for actually the countdown to Millennium. Although we did bring down, yeah, but my mate's sister and her friends did come down as well with us. Uh, I mean, I obviously didn't talk to any of them, but we did bring them back to the there were girls in the same postcode as us Unbel- uh, just madness so it was an absolute madness of jack and jilling it up the hill and running down again at high yeah, speed right it was more time. yeah well, it was jack and jack running up the hill <laughs> the madness that you went through in the millennium uh my yeah my mind sits somewhere in the middle of everyone's i think we uh lived uh at that time my wife and i in a part of san francisco uh that was uh, called Pachero Hill. It's approximately uh, five miles from from Fisherman's Wharf or the water out that way. We decided to uh, basically start walking at around five in the after four or five o'clock in the afternoon and just casually walk that the, there's a main sort of way you could go and just grab cocktails along the way uh, and make our way there for the fireworks show at midnight. And, uh, and we achieved it. Uh, we got there, you know, in time and, uh, sufficiently lubricated but not you know chundering if you will uh, but i do remember on the bus ride back one direct bus which was packed there was a man who just kept on screaming let's party like it's 1999 let's party like it's 1999 he just kept on yelling it over and over so every time i hear that bloody prince song i just think of that bloke and it was uh you know and then of course the sheer amusement when the world didn't collapse at 1201 i remember that very clearly anyway so <laughs> 
I think Spurs in the noughties is going to be, uh, you know, quite quite a conversation. I mean, the 90s uh, saw us, you know, in, I don't know, I, some various, I mean, we got a lot out of the 90s, didn't we, between us? Mm. I mean, we really saw some turbulence, but I, I, I don't know. This is maybe the, the biggest of all. I mean, let's let me kick this off with an easy question. And, you know, fingers on the buzzer, whoever wants to come in first on this, please do. What was it like? Being a Spurs fan in the noughties. Okay, well, for me, the, certainly the first four years of the noughties were just a continuation of the 90s. I mean, if there's one thing that's more 90s Spurs than Spurs in the 90s, it was Spurs in the early 2000s. So we were, we were mediocre for the first four years. I think what I really thought of when I was looking back at this was just how depressing it was because of what was going on down the road and a little bit further across London. So you had Arsenal went on and won the double in 2002, then had their invincible season two years after that. Then Abramovich takes over Chelsea and takes them onto a brand new level as well. So we were constantly in their, you know, in their shadow. I looked up the stats for this. We played 41 league games against Arsenal and Chelsea in the decade and won only twice. Um, so it was, it was, it was pretty thin pickings in, in league games. That is, we had two very successful cup games, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about but I mean on us once you take those first four years out of it what you then begin to see is you do begin to see certainly some signs of progression it, it's not a straight line trajectory it was probably you know been two steps forward and then one step backward fairly continuously throughout the rest of the decade um, so yeah what, what you, you, we finished the decade in a much better position than we started it yeah I mean I agree with Gareth I mean certainly at the start of the decade it was very different to how we ended the decade you know as I think you know at the start of the decade as I clamber up the old southeast stairwell up to the south upper there I think in the early points of that decade I was still just going through the motions as such thinking you know is it the same old Tottenham and is, is it a continuation of the sugar era but I suppose, although I suppose we had the romantic appointment of Hoddle and we all wanted that to go well. And sadly, that didn't. I suppose it was the change of ownership in the end. We're getting rid of um, replacing sugar that um, brought in the current owners that are still around now, obviously, uh, that would see a step change. And, you know, as Gareth says, one step, uh, two steps forward. You've hit the centre of the question here, which I think is very important to to restate. I mean, you said that you felt somewhat like it was going through the motions at the beginning. So let's just focus on that as an emotion and really zero in. So it starts there. How do you feel that emotion changes? Because we're going to get into the details behind the emotions. But how did that emotion change or did it as you went through the noughties of course it feels like groundhog day when you're going and every season we finish 10th we finish 11th i think the biggest change was the martin yo era basically and i think that was more not just down to us making progress i think that was down to martin big martin being a lovely bloke and that connection came with the supporters and that was that was everything i think at that time and of course we were then we were then playing better as well what it was like being a spurs fan in the noughties for me turbulent emotional in the sense of up and down you never knew where you were and then it suddenly hit a period where I actually trusted my positive trajectory now as you all know I carry the glass half full um, approach you know to everything including Spurs and it you know up until I think 2005 I wondered if I was on the same boat as all of you flogging a dead horse but I did feel that as the trajectory from 2005 went I started to trust it so by the end of the noughties it was pretty it was pretty cool being a Spurs fan because you felt you're at the dawning of something big again and Milo bring us home with your thoughts on what it was to be a Spurs fan in the noughties so it's probably my favorite period of 
kind of going to games. I had a quite a big friendship group that used to go to games every week. And kind of as time's gone on, you know, people have got married or had kids or moved away or, you know, work commitments mean they can't do it as much. So that kind of group started falling to pieces. So a lot of my fondness for this period is tied up with a great group of mates that I'd see you know, every other week and, you know, we'd have a few beers before the game and then meet up after the game and, and, and talk about it and all of that. And it, it's quite, a, it was quite a good period for that to happen because, you know, as Ricky was saying at the beginning of the decade, uh, or as, you know, as Gareth said as well, it was almost like an extension of the, of the, um, of the nineties. So for, for a lot of that period, actually going to the game itself was probably the least important part of the day and chatting with your mates was, was the bit that I, really enjoyed and then as the decade went on kind of our expectations grew and how we were playing improved yeah you know what you're expecting to get out of the game changed you know, by the kind of middle of the decade or you know towards the end of the decade i was going along expecting us to win games which you know the reverse was the case for those the, you know those first few years first four or five years of that decade yeah i think we're all we're all saying the same thing uh I, I, you know let me then go back to 2001 and let's you know start at the beginning as we as we should hear of the noughties in 2001 enic bought a controlling stake in spurs from alan sugar and levy became chairman of the club that is daniel levy just in case there was any doubt you know i suppose we should think about how much of this discussion of the noughties is actually a discussion about their respective stewardships of the club and 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 the changes that that did come about under Daniel in how the club was run. I mean, is that is that essentially what we're talking about when we talk about Spurs in the Nordies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Again, you know, repeating what we've just said, I think the first few years of that, I mean, I would put that up until kind of Hoddle sacking and Pleats period as caretaker was an extension of how the club was run in the 90s. And I think it was at that point with, you know, after that with the appointment of Arneson, you know, Santini briefly, but uh, Yo was really the changing point. And I think if you look at our kind of league finishes over the over the decade, that kind of bears that out. So we've got you know it's twelfth, ninth, tenth, fourteenth, ninth in Yol's first you know the half season, uh, and then fifth, fifth, eleventh under Ramos, eighth and fourth. So our average league finishes in the first half of the decade is ten point eight, and our average league finish in the second half of the decade is six point six. I'm going to use that run of placings that you've put for my next lottery entry. I think we should uh, see how that goes. And <laughs> I just thought it was a it had a nice ring about it especially towards the end you, you make a good point you know if you look at that that Ramos season you know he focused on the on the cup didn't he rather than the league and he was playing second strings in the league you know there's even an excuse there in terms of you know why that league finish was was lower yeah I was just going to say with Enig I think um I think Daniel tried three t- well it's the third time he tried to buy us I think or at least offer Sugar the money they wanted for his shares so he was obviously they were obviously keen to do it and I was thinking I mean we can never obviously we look back and we're we're very critical of Sugar, and I think that was because from an ambition point of view. But, you know, he saved us from Bob Maxwell and he saved all that thing, so he steadied the ship. And I was thinking that uh, it's probably a comparison there with Levy and Sugar and also Scholar before. I think Levy might be a bit of a, and Enoch themselves might be a mm. bit of a mix of Sugar and Scholar. Like, Scholar was a visionary, but couldn't control the finances and we got in trouble. And then Sugar, no ambition, but could control the finances. So maybe Levy's ended up being a bit of a mix of that. And. And he had the foresight with Arneson and the director of football pattern and all that kind of thing, which I think's 
probably served us well early there. I agree. I would add the caveat to that is that Levy has ended up as being a mixture of the two, uh, possibly by virtue of his own uh, somewhat thin skin when it comes to criticism. He does react in the end, but I wouldn't say he necessarily is an Irving scholar from the start in anything that we move forward to do. He's still firmly in the sort of pragmatic business zone, which is not a criticism, it's an observation. I think really we were playing, most of this decade is us playing catch up after the sugar years because um yeah when we did the 90s pod back in november we talked about how far behind we felt you know we fell behind what were the top five clubs at the turn of the you know 80s into 90s and you know arsenal and manchester united just got so so far ahead of us it was like wearing it was like dressing like the bay city rollers in Britpop yeah. for a while there wasn't it we were so hopelessly out of touch with our immediate neighbors and, and i think certainly from that kind of the Arneson point onwards it was about you know, professionalizing the club and modernizing it and bringing it up to the standard that you saw with other Premier League clubs you know that for me is the turning point that's when we turn you know when, when things turned around and I think that's the path we've been on since then. So it's like just talking about Enoch it's worth pointing out to our listeners who may not be aware that within three months of, um, of Enoch taking over they they made the very populist decision of getting rid of George Graham and replacing him with Glenn Hoddle. So that was um, that was within three months of them taking over at the yeah. start of 2001, which you could say cynically was a bit of a PR stunt. I've got to say, since then, I don't think Enoch have existed for publicity stunts, but certainly it was a way of, of trying to get the fans on side and trying to make them say, look, look, we're different from the previous ownership here. We understand the, the history and the heritage of the club. You make an excellent point there, because I remember, and I, I think we should probably remind our listeners that David Bucklow was the one who was uh, actually, was he not the chairman at the time before Daniel before Daniel took the chair? He was uh, the short-term chairman, was he not, right. when they first came in? Yep. It should be recalled that we beat West Ham 3-2 in a quarter-final at uh, at Upton Park and uh man in a raincoat uh, certainly was carrying the mojo and everyone felt that you know who better to beat his you know his former love and than him uh, and I do remember there was a logic to it but you didn't want it to happen in a sense we we almost ended up with the same sort of decision when Mourinho was sacked if you think about it but I distinctly remember looking during the semi-final or before it at Old Trafford and seeing Gorman and Hoddle and Hewden all walking out together as a trio. And I remember thinking, they've given us our Tottenham back. I mean, that was naive, heart glass, our full fanboy. But it's such a good point. They did come in all guns blazing um, to correct that. And somewhat in a loop back to the early part of the decade, which I do think we should talk about a little bit in our memories of that period. Are we all in agreement that really the overriding memory of the early part of the Nordies is the tragedy that was Glenn Hoddle's inability to succeed as our manager. I mean, we all wanted it, didn't we? But it just couldn't happen. Why do we think it couldn't happen? And and what other memories do you have of those of those early years of the noughties? My memory of the Hoddle era was just what a battle it was against the media, who really seemed to have it in from him since the England days. And there was a real glee when he eventually got the got the sack as well um, and I felt really sorry for him because I always felt he was up against it and you know all these stories about his poor man management skills but just seemed to be perpetuated and I'm not sure how true they actually were I think the problem was that it was an era in Enix's tenureship where there wasn't much money to spend and Spurs didn't really have the ability to attract many players either through financial means or through anything that we'd done on the pitch at the time or through having good facilities at the training ground we were signing it was either a mixture of young players 
which were good, who maybe weren't quite ready for the first team, or we were signing um, cheap players, Simovic, Budjevcevic, Gus Poyer is a 35-year-old, Teddy Sheringham is a 36-year-old and a free. I mean, Ziga was a, was a good player for us, but again, we were signing a player in the autumn of his career. So I think Hoddle was working, trying to work with the best he had, uh, but really it was nowhere near the level that we needed to get to top six, which at the time was very much the holy grail for us. When I was looking at Hoddle's record, they gave him a a very fair crack of the whip, but it came clear we was making no progress year on year. And I think was it his last season? I think, though, on that last season, that was the year we bought, I think we bought Postiga, Samora, Canute and Defoe. Maybe that was a sign that we were going to spend money, we were going to back him. I mean, you know, we'd never sign four four strikers in the window now, would we? We'd never get one. And but by that September, I think he had gone. He'd had such a terrible start yeah. to that season. We just couldn't give him any more time. And maybe I'm not sure if he gave him too much time, but I think it's just a romantic story. I mean, he's such such a club legend on the field. And we all of us would have wanted it to work off the field as our manager. It would have been a perfect thing. Alas, it was not to be. It was it was a really painful end. I think he was given more time than he perhaps he should have been. I think the summer 2003 would have been the time to have got rid of him. That If I remember the 2002-03 season, we actually started really well. We were top. I remember Sheringham scoring a last-minute penalty against Southampton. Um, and it was the day we'd signed Robbie Keane. And we won 2-1 to go top of the league, albeit probably for 24 hours. But it went downhill very, very rapidly. And if you remember right at the end of that season, we finished off losing 5-1 up at Middlesbrough. Uh, and then we got beat 4-0 by Blackburn on the final day of the season. And um, fans were throwing season tickets on the pitch, which was which was you know a thing in the day when you usually had paper season ticket books. And that was probably the time to yeah. tell him. But it, was, it got really turgid, the football, at the second half of that season. Again, mm. not entirely his fault. We, we were playing Teddy Sheringham and, and Gary Doherty up front for the last part of the second half of that season. We really had no centre forward. And they, they did splash the cash. So so we got Canute in, who looked brilliant for about three months, didn't he? Um, we got Postiga in, and it never quite worked for him. And I guess Zamora was um, another example of us buying a, a young upcoming player. And again, it didn't really work out for, for him in the end. Um, but yeah, he needed a really good start to that season, um, having finished off 2003 so badly. And then we had that awful start, which culminated in, in getting tonked to own by Southampton, who were course hated us because we took him off in the, in the first instance and yeah uh, you know at, at that point he was he, he was gone unfortunately yeah, he was toast by then I think it was just you could tell you can tell when a rain's coming to an end and it certainly was then it was just it was oh it was terrible stuff and everyone was heartbroken I think by it and because if you're a legend at the club you don't want anything to tarnish that really so um I don't think it does I think we all still we we still love Glenn you know for all everything he done on the field. Yeah, never worked. I mean, I, I suppose the, the point is, and I know we, we'll all have memories of this, this might come up in the worst moments of the, of the decade, but that 2002 League Cup final, you know, how things might have changed had we beaten Blackburn. And it was it, that was a freak game. You can say Blackburn played well and, and we didn't play well on the day, but I mean, Friedel, who'd later go and join us, was player of the match and we had an absolute stonewall penalty turned down right at the end. Um, you know, nine times out of ten, we win that final. And, you know, who knows what difference that would have made if we'd got into Europe I have to say, I, I just to chip in a, a Glen memory from from this time. I my son was actually chosen as a mascot uh, for the Man City home game in the 2002-2003 season. It was uh, an Easter game um, featuring uh, the might of Toda player, who will probably not get mentioned again. Uh, on any podcast actually let alone this one yeah Zach as I I must say he scored several goals on Casey Keller just for the record but what was significant about that day to me was I met Glenn 
and and he was very he was lovely he was everything i hoped you know he would be but he grasped my hand and he actually said to me i hope you've brought us good luck today and it was such an odd thing to hear from one of you know from a hero of mine one of the greatest players to ever play the game and someone who i genuinely thought was going to turn out to be a wonderful manager for us despite all the evidence to the contrary at that point for a variety of reasons that you've all been discussing it just struck me as wow this is this this really may not work i can't put my finger on why but just i think the way he said it it just i don't know it was strange and i started to slowly realize this is not going to happen and i have to say it was one of the most disastrous performances and uh, that final year and um, i mean i'm going to i'm getting one of my worst moments yeah it was a 2-0 game yeah zach hadn't even walked off the pitch in man city and gone one up and some bloke screamed from the stands at him not knowing i was his dad he goes you better get back out there son you're the only one who's in the net in a spurs shirt today i mean it was yeah it was pretty pretty weird it was a very weird time wasn't it mm. and i think if, if i can bring us to a bridge um and bring you in on this milo because i know that uh this is a, a period of, of particular interest to you once again we did fall back on david pleat to come in and steady the ship and it's an interesting uh it's an interesting signifier of of, of levy is that he has actually always kept david pleat around that's apropos of nothing really but he always seems to have him in the background advising on something here and there his name still pops up to this day but why don't you bring us through that time where pleat came in yeah i mean i've covered a little bit of this already as i said earlier on it i think it's the the turning point um in the decade and i think it's probably the most significant period in enix ownership of the club um because it shifted a you know, a change in policy from what we saw before, which I think really was a bit of a continuation of, of the sugar years. And you said about the hoddle appointment being to appease the fans. You know, I think it was a sentimental appointment rather than strictly a football decision. And that's why ultimately I don't think it worked out. But that period of plea as caretaker after Hoddle sacking when Levy was taking stock of where they were and what they wanted to do, um, you know, resulted in Arneson coming in and, you know, the mistaken appointment of Santini. But the, you know, bringing in Yol as his deputy and I think really actually the, the turnaround in players and the squad, squad rejuvenation that happened under Arneson and then continued afterwards um, was really significant. And again, I think probably marks the beginning of kind of that, that successful transfer policy that we saw under Enoch for a while of buying young players developing them and that you know them selling them on but you know, before that if you look at the players we had at the turn of the decade there's a lot of kind of established pros who are you know the best years are probably behind them and I always got the feeling that quite a lot of them that were there to pick up a, a check rather than anything else I think you know kind of Jamie Redknapp and Tim Sherwood and you know Chris Perry and you know some of these players and no 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 slight on them personally but you know not really a, it wasn't a great transfer policy that period leading up to Arneson coming in and then you know the subsequent years I think you know up until probably Redknapp took over as manager was was really key and and, and really changed the culture of the club and changed the approach of the club. Oh, you mentioned Jamie Redknapp. I'm not going to hold any punches. I thought he was a waster. I thought considering the amount of talent that he did actually have, he came to us and took a ride off our back and uh, and, and, and actually, uh, you know, tried to double down and, and blame everyone else for mm-hmm. it. So I think he was absolutely symptomatic. As a matter of fact, I take 10 Chris Perry's over Jamie Redknapp. So at least Chris Perry gave a shit. You know, so uh, yeah. I, I, as a matter of fact, I just I try and not think of him as a Spurs player. And it's interesting, Gareth. You shared a passage from from Glenn's book recently with us, uh, where he actually made mention of the fact that there were people that he wanted, and he ended up working with people like Jamie Redknapp. And you know, he 
put the same qualifier in about like, you know, no, basically nothing personal intended, but it tells you everything you need to know. Okay, I've sort of sidetracked us a little bit from the heart of the noughties and and the centre point, uh, and it is the initials FA that uh, Milo has brought up, um, not standing for what, you know, you might immediately think. It stands for Frank Arneson, and I'm sure we all have an opinion. Um, uh, Milo has shared his uh, chaps. Uh, Why don't you come in on whether you agree with Milo on the Frank Arneson appointment um, and and what it did, uh, or whether you disagree? I think it was a fantastic appointment for us at exactly the right time. That's really where you start to see us moving in a different direction. And if, if legend is to believe, um, Arneson wanted Yol to come in as manager all the time. And actually, it was Levy who thought yes. after nine months of, of telling fans that we were right. going to make a really big managerial appointment. I think the rumour was Giovanni Trapattoni had been spoken to. And if it hadn't been for Mrs. Trapattoni, you are spot on. He would have um, he, he would have been our manager in 2004. So instead, they, they made a bit of a compromise and appointed Jack Santini, who just stood down as the as the French national coach to come in and, and Yol as his number two. But by all accounts, Arneson and Yole at the training ground were, were absolutely as thick and as thick as thieves and yeah. that was very that very much contributed to Santini um jacking it in excuse the pun uh within, within very good that's two, very yeah, impressive I didn't mean to do that um within two months of the start of the season um <laughs> so also, I mean, can, can, can I just interrupt you for a moment just uh, look Anyone listening to this, if you didn't see Jack Santini, never has a man's face reflected his mood more accurately. I mean, he constantly looked like the proverbial pool dog licking piss off a nettle. I mean, did he ever smile with us? I don't remember. I don't think so, no. I think he was just a bit sick. Probably the Euro style wasn't open by then because I think he would have been yeah, gone a lot quicker. He probably was. Although he did he did deliver a Spurs side that, uh, that beat Newcastle 1-0 in a game I was at and you know, produced an extraordinary goal from an extraordinary player in Timothy Atuba. But I interrupted you, Gareth. Carry on. Thinking about that Santini era, I think in years to come, it will be remembered very similarly to the Nuno period, won't it? It was um, it was a very strange it, part, part of the season. We were very, very pragmatic under Santini. So, of course, it was Santini who famously was responsible for the park in the bus comment from, you know, you know your friend, who was Chelsea manager at the time, when we went and stunk out Stamford Bridge My and got a nil-nil friend. draw. Yeah, great, um, of course, it? the problem with that style of play was when we played Norwich at home the following week, we could we, we drew nil-nil then as well. So we couldn't turn it on. Or t- we did get six up at Oldham in the League Cup during that period, but that, but that's about it. That was also, I mean, thinking about the Santini period now, um, that was when we had the very sad news that Bill Nicholson had died uh, on, the, on the morning that we would then go on to lose at home to, to Bolton. And um, Santini lasted, I think, no more than a couple of weeks after that before before Big Martin Yell came in. But anyway, the point was that that was Frank Arneson who had knowledge of, you know, at least different different football on the continent. He was aware of Martin was this upcoming manager and, and coach who he felt would be a really good fit for Spurs and you know ultimately and we know under the unique period we've been littered of occasions where we've almost stumbled upon a manager who's been really good for us and certainly Martin Yole was the gateway to, to much better things. I mean I, I must at this point before you come in Ricky again I'd like our listeners to close their eyes and just imagine a scene where Jacques Santini and Frank Arneson sharing a friendly meal maybe even a cup of coffee I doubt they even shared much air together, actually. I mean, two more different personalities I cannot imagine at a football club. I mean, it, you know, Jacques' days were really numbered before they started, weren't they? But, Ricky, your thoughts on Frank Arneson? Well, it's nothing to add, really. I mean, apart from... <laughs> I can take, make this take a depressing turn by saying that 
the reasons for Arnold and coming were all positive and to play that kind of European model of having a director of football and a structure behind the scenes but let's face it boys uh, the way he left will tarnish well, I'll, it I'll give you a little bit of insight into that actually if I may um, again uh, one of the reasons I've always loved Maurizio Pochettino is because he's in an auras man uh, and I know that that splits our fan base I met Frank Arneson in 2000, uh, 2005 uh, Michael Dawson was actually had just signed. It was that time it was at the training ground. And so I managed to engage in a chat with him, uh, engage him in a chat. And he was very excited to talk. I mean, he was great. He was very personable, very happy to talk. But I must admit, whilst I appreciate what he bought in terms of direction and system, it started to plant a little seed in my head that the whole idea of the director of football and the way the modern director of football was going to progress and work in the game was as a little bit of a flash Harry salesman, you know, now you see it, now you don't let me gather enough merch. And one of them's going to come through smoke and mirrors guy. And he actually did turn around and say to me bluntly, uh, yeah, you know, you sign a whole bunch of young players that you've got your scouts out, you sign them and you literally, you throw them at the wall and you see which ones stick and you see which ones slide down. And I never forget him because he made it sound like these were balls of mud that would hit a wall and the ones that slid, you didn't pay any attention to and the ones that stuck, you did. Now, it's a graphic way of putting it and I certainly don't think it reflects his incredible enthusiasm and love for football and I do not want to suggest that he, that he does, it doesn't. But what it did suggest is that this new model was definitely about gathering as much youth as you could and, and, and owning it so as you could see what worked. And I think it links very well with what he bought to Chelsea uh, when they poached him and why he went there, you know, the money, and he knew he would get. And ultimately, if you look at Chelsea's model, it's been all about that as, as, as well as being able to buy the best. They established that model. So it was pretty fascinating and uh, the way it worked. But he definitely, definitely was a very charismatic guy I mean, incredibly charismatic i mean so smooth and and talk to you and talk to little old me like i was a prospective signing so you know a silver tongue cavalier of the highest caliber and yes mm. i think he was a, a a very important appointment if only to get us on the modern page we have arrived at his particular choice of manager, which, as you quite rightly said, Gareth, and I believe was always Martin Young. I think he was always waiting to manoeuvre him into place and waiting for the right moment. And in Martin came. And so, look, let's not beat around the bush. I think we should probably just spend the next five minutes, each of us going around, um, just offering another quick appraisal of the mighty Martin Young. Who wants to start the tributes? I've waxed lyrical about... Um... Big Martin a few times on this pod. I love him. He's of the Enoch era managers, him, Poch, yeah, and hopefully Conte are my favourites. And they're the ones that kind of spoke to me. They're the ones that I bought into. They're the ones that have um, delivered, you know, some of my favourite favourite moments. And uh, they're the ones that take the longest to get over leaving. Yeah, I love uh, Yo. I think he was great for us. I think he was exactly what we needed at that moment. And just his whole character, I think, really was exactly what we needed. And the bond between him and the fans, I don't think the bond between his team and the fans was great. Well, he really came in as, and he waxed uh, lyrical about 
the fact he was a fan and uh, you know I, I I've no reason to question him I don't know if he really was or not but by word I believed every word of it and he really was the guy who gave us our identity back wasn't he absolutely yeah I remember not long after he'd taken over as manager in the November the club was still publicly listed at the time so they therefore had to have an AGM with their shareholders there and, and first team managers always asked to be there and I think previously they never really said anything but Apparently he you know, he stood up, he took the mic, he he walked around, he spoke about Bill Nicholson and the legacy that he left at the club and and how he wants to emulate him. So yeah, I think he I think he really got the club, or at least if it was an act, it was a very very good one. But I think it became a very very natural fit for him for him before long. And look, right place at the right time. He's you know his uncle Martin Yo. We say that about him as as fans, but I think for a very young and developing team as well, he was someone who was charismatic enough that they could really buy into what he was trying to do well think back then when he's um because first he came in as an assistant manager and back then you don't you don't know his character at all it's not like these days you have a, le- a lot better gauge on people and he just kind of rose to the role completely moved into the into the uh, first team manager seat and he just took to it like a duck like Walter. maybe that's just his character he's a real people person he's a people's man but but in a real as Gareth says in a real natural way it didn't come across as being forced or anything and I actually spoke, to, I went to a, an under-21s game at Sellers Park once, and he was there, and he would just talk to you in the, he would talk to you in the car park with not, not really that interest in getting back in his car and stuff like that, just liked to talk football. And he had that real kind of grounded feel about him, and of course he had that big kind of Martin, the old strength oh, as well, where you just thought strength. that you could rely, he's a solid... Come on, let's just get to it. Let's just get to it. When Martin. he squared up <laughs> to Wenger at... at at Highbury, uh, that was just yeah. a classic <laughs> noughties moment. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Because it was everything. Because mm. Wenger had been sniding for years and getting away with stuff, and Big Martin was just not going to let him get away with it. I mean, it was such a great moment, a great moment. But I think that was really important in terms of yeah. yes, you know, the the team turning around because you know for yeah. too often in the too often in the past. I mean, actually, it's still the case now. Often we'd you know would be walkovers. We'd allow people to walk over us, and he. he wouldn't you know he wouldn't allow that and I think it really helped it really helped our mentality and the mentality of the fans as well I think you know I'm sure we'll go and talk about about Davids later on but yeah I think on the pitch I think he had exactly the same kind of um, impact yeah I was just about to mention him and I was also about to mention Nuruddin Naibet who I believe was also Mm. an absolutely vital signing that and and this is where I think uh, Martin really knew he knew his onions didn't he because he knew exactly what we needed we had this raw talent in Ledley King and he knew what he needed he needed a teacher he needed a teacher on the pitch and uh, you know and so Naibet came in in the mid noughties and and really really i think bought ledley on tenfold i mean there's no Mm -hmm. two ways about it and as you quite rightly say milo you know let's be honest we were callow more often than not and we would allow people to walk all over us as you say and we lack balls and one thing that edgar davids doesn't lack is balls i mean he was even fighting his own teammates sometimes but you know everyone appreciated it and we needed it and my word he got him and you're, Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right so i think when you know we've got to say that you know, as the twists and turns came, you know, y'all really recognised what we were missing in the Nordies, uh, not just in terms of creativity, but also, as you quite rightly say, in terms of having a pair, you know, really important. I say, y'all's a director of football at the moment. So if things don't work out with Fabio, it'd be lovely to have him back. I'm, I'm joking, but I mean... <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> He'd be director of football and Potch come back as manager. The two lovely blokes. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Big old loving. 
Yeah, we started as well. I mean, one thing I think about when I think of the noughties and, you know, we'll, we'll take a little, let's start looking at a couple of the players who are notable. I mean, you know, this is Aaron Lennon's coming in, right? You know, we've got, uh, let me see. Well, we might, Berber's coming in for sure. Berber's around. Carrick mm. was a centre point, a centre point. And actually, I have to say that, you know, you could argue that in losing Carrick, Yol lost a really important part of a team that he was building that could actually have gone on and done far mm. more than it did. You know, the other side of Martin Yol, which I do want to just throw out there briefly, is there were always rumours that whenever we went on a good run, he was in Daniel's ear looking for an, looking for an extra few quid. And, you know, the rumours never left that he talked to both Newcastle and Holland mm. about their jobs while he was working with us. So there was another side to him, um, ruthlessly ambitious, uh, one might say, and also looking to maximise his value. Hindsight tells me that, uh, great, why shouldn't he, in a sense, because nobody else is going to do it for him. Uh, you know, but at the time, I remember feeling a little bit miffed that he was doing that whilst working for my mighty beloved Spurs, uh, where everything was surely rosy and he was being treated like a king. <laughs> yeah, do you remember his first game was the 5-4 against Arsenal, wasn't it? I think that was his first, which was a classic game. Mm. Oh, well, not that classic, we lost. But um, I think Keenan Defoe was scoring goals then as well, which was really, really helping him. And I think in that, I think the thing I remember in that second season was which really helped him because I think then Ledley and Dawson were playing together. And I think, I think we got knocked out of the cups early, didn't we? And we literally only played 40 games. I think we played 38 league games and two cup games and that was it. And I think that really helped. I mean, obviously the season ended with the um, infamous Lasagna game. He suffered some very bad luck. And we'll touch on this for just a second. I'm sure it's going to pop up in our worst memories. But there's two, really. And we always talk about Lasagna Gate. And we'll get into that at at the end of the show. Uh, You know, the other one that really, really sticks in the craw was Pedro Mendes uh, Mm. uh, moment, which was was absolutely shocking. Mm. Um, I mean, it was beyond the pale. I mean, you know. I've cracked this joke many times, but this is actually a doubt. It's a fact. Ray Charles knew that that ball was over the line. I mean, you didn't need sight to know. It was so obvious. And it cost... Martin Yole in the, the previous year, I think it cost him, cost him, uh, cost him dearly. It cost us, if I remember correctly, and Milo, you I know I always get this passage wrong. I think it cost us European football that year because that was the year we went to Middlesbrough needing to win uh, to get into the, the UEFA Cup, and we did not. So I think that was the moment that we, you know, we stalled. We got our, our progress has stalled under him. Let's bring this Yole era to a close. We're all going to have our thoughts on how it ended, but they're probably all going to be the same, right? It's a bit shoddy, wasn't it? It, you know, it's one of the worst episodes in Enix's ownership of the club, the way that it was done. I mean, results-wise, um, there'd been a big thing in the summer of 2007. We'd finished fifth two years in a row. So we had the lasagna season. The following year, we were never really in the race for the top four, but we were pretty consistently the best team beyond that. And clearly, you know, the, the board and Levy really wanted to push on from that. But I think Martin Yol went public quite a few occasions and he could be a little bit outspoken and really played down the chance of getting in the top four and really sort of dismissed the, you know, the ability of the team to compete with what, what was then a very well established top four of, of Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea and, and Liverpool. And I think they felt he was perhaps being quite negative. And then when we got some fairly unfortunate results at the start of the 07 08 season and we were down in about 12th or 13th place, the writing was perhaps a little bit on the wall. You you could see that there was that disharmony between him 
and the balls, the way it was handled in that game against Hitafe in the in the UEFA Cup was appalling, and it will say it will go down as one of the worst episodes. I think not just in Enix's ownership in the club, but in you know in modern times. And it was it was sorry to see him go, and the fact that we've been publicly courting Ramos throughout the summer as well also wasn't you know wasn't a good look for a manager who'd been so popular. Going on to that 0607 season, I think it was the opposite of the season before because I think we went we lost in the quarterfinals of the league, uh, FA Cup, we got to the semi-finals of the League Cup, we got to the quarterfinals of UEFA Cup. So like games were thick and fast, and it was the opposite to the previous season. And sometimes I think if you go near and quite far in those cups, I think sometimes the team can become a bit. A bit like with Poch, maybe, where you think we just can't, you know, we just can't quite go as far as we need to go. And that might affect the manager as well. And as Gareth said, that um, that's that next season, it certainly um, didn't start well for him, although, you know, we'd made some new signings and things. But um, and, I, and ironically, I think that, that the year before, I think that was in that Sevilla game, which was a classic UEFA Cup game we had with them. Unfortunately for Martin, I think the seeds were sown with the Ramos thing because Sevilla were a, a they were a lovely side. They were a very very good side, and I think Levy fell in love with Ramos a bit through that. I think so. One day Ramos did come in. Um, he was he was responsible for you know our last uh, trophy win, the League Cup final in two thousand and eight, two one over Chelsea. It was great. Um, he sacrificed uh, the league basically to get that trophy, and then after that, uh, we fell off a cliff form wise. He um, lost. I believe it was 52 or 54 goals in the summer with the departures of Keane and Berbatov, which would cripple any manager. But it most certainly knackered him. Uh, there were also rumours at that time that he was having some personal issues and difficulties at home. So off he went. And after great pressure from uh, people around Daniel Levy, in came Harry Redknapp. Let's keep it brief with Harry, if we can. I mean, you know, the, sh- the, short-, the short answer is he got us out of trouble, made us happy again got us looking attractive and got us in the Champions League, which, I mean, is if we just left it at that, it would be a wonderful uh, analysis of his Spurs career, which probably deserves closer scrutiny because it's not quite that clean. Having said that, chaps, a minute on Harry Redknapp. I was never particularly a fan of his before he joined us. I think it's probably fair to say that he was a caretaker who massively overachieved. I think you know, he was brought in to try and save us. And, you know, we did look like we were going to get relegated at the point he came in. We, we'd been appalling. And, yeah, he overachieved and then got distracted. But, you know, we played we played some really enjoyable football under him. It was probably, you know, pretty simple. It was pick your best 11 players, chuck them out on the pitch and tell them to go for it. Um, there wasn't a lot more going on than that. But that was quite good fun. And he had some bloody good players to send out there and tell them to go and enjoy themselves. Um, and I think, sorry, the other thing on Redknapp actually, you know, probably quite um, quite apt c- considering, you know, we're recording this on the evening of the 31st of January, is that that first transfer window he had, the players he brought in at that point were exactly what we needed. And I think, you know, as disparaging as I can be about Redknapp sometimes, I think, you know, someone like Wilson Palacios, who, you know, probably wasn't, um, you know, on every every fan's top of every fan's uh, purchase list was exactly what we needed and he very very quickly spotted what was wrong with the team and brought in players to to rectify that so yeah it was it was good fun and that champions league run was fantastic it's great really good fun yeah, he also he also rung a tune out of supercalifragilistic roman pavlichenko which is uh, i always thought a, a pretty great thing to be able to uh, claim that you did and he did but anyway Carry on, chaps. Uh, yeah, I, I buck the trend, really. I think, with you, I really like Harry Redknapp. I, I was a big fan of him before he joined us. Um, and 
as you said, it, going to watch Spurs under Redknapp was fun. So the, the, Milo pointed out really well there wasn't a great deal of science behind it. It was very much get some good players and tell them to go and run around a bit. Was probably the the exact quote. But yeah, look, it was an enjoyable time to you know to go and watch Spurs and. I'll, I'll always be grateful for the time that he had at the club. He came in at exactly the right time. He was exactly the person that we needed to fix a leak at the time. And, you know, he, he did well. Yeah, he was a firefighter, wasn't he? And I think even the chairman was surprised how over, how much he overachieved. Um, considering it's not that long ago, really, it was amazing how simplistic he could see the game and still manage at the top level in a Premier League and then in the Champions League to make that work and it's linked to a mile from that really and we had we had great times at the lane and we had great times in Europe we had great times in Milan and I can't I, don't, I always find it quite hard to be sort of massively critical of him and the way he ended it certainly could be criticised because it was bloody annoying but you know what do you go to football for I mean, so many times at the mm. lane, it would be rocking and we'd be, mm. we'd, we'd be over the moon with what we're seeing on the pitch. And there'd be a good vibe and a good buzz about it. He, um, he of course, bought the cheat sheet for how to beat Wigan when we scored nine goals of them. And that seven of them were exactly the same goal. Played the ball, played inside the left back. It was Eric Edmund, <laughs> formerly off Spurs. Um, and then Lennon would cross it for Defoe. Yeah, I, I was going to say that um, it kind of shows how much football's moved on in the you know, 12, 14 years since he was, since he was with us. Um, and whether kind of his approach would work at the top level now but then I remembered that Solskjaer was Manchester United manager earlier on this season and he was doing pretty much exactly the same thing. Harry Redknapp reminded me uh, what football hypocrisy is because much like Milo I, I couldn't stand him um, you know when he was when he was not at our club and I swallowed it because he was with us and you back every manager um, that's there because you support the club and uh, and you know I, I, I learned to really enjoy his tenure and I think one of the things with him again is he's utterly personable in that Terry Venables possibly on steroids way that he made it impossible for you not to like him with his cheeky chappy comments and so on and so forth and run about a bit and he was never afraid of he was never afraid of, of playing the press and I think he actually much like Martin before him one thing he did do for us is he, he got us back into the good graces of a lot of Fleet Street and a lot of press because mm. uh, and that was a really it was a really important fact uh, especially and it has been going forward with modern football you know you do have to be able yeah. to give the club good light in the media and he was good for that as well you know and he was good for letting players do what they did we saw that with Nuno recently didn't we where the press turn on a manager when they don't give them lines don't give them stories they want to be fed and Redknapp's great at giving a journalist a story yeah and he's a tremendous deflector yeah I mean I think it's probably fair to say that how loose-tongued he was probably didn't sit too well with um with Levy in the top of the shop, it's not really how they like to do business. So it always felt like a, a you know a marriage of convenience that probably wasn't going to going to last very long, and and it was always on borrowed time from the very beginning. Well, the word was, and of course we could never corroborate this that uh, every, you know for the success that we achieved under under Redknapp, it was a bit of a thorn in 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 Daniel's side because he wasn't quite expecting it, and he thought, well, we'll get the relegation expert to get us out, and then we can shuffle him on quickly, and I can get back in another of my sort of more progressive choices that I, that I want to go to because I am married to the idea of a director of football. It was most certainly a firefight appointment that ended up being a tenure. And I think that was of some surprise to mm. Daniel Levy. But we did, you know, we did see out uh, uh, the noughties. We saw that uh, we saw that decade out in in the Champions League. And 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 you have to you you have to give him credit for it. It was down to him because, as we remember, approaching that April, we got into the Champions League that season. You know, it was tight. We had to win a lot of big games. And mm. much to your statistic, there, Gareth, we had to beat both Chelsea and Arsenal in the same week. 
and uh, and 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 thus we did. I mean, I thought we're, and obviously that that came after completely fucking up the semi final <laughs> against Portsmouth. And I thought, I think, well, I thought, I think did Palacios then get suspended or something? I think because of that. And I thought I just came out of there double double upset because I thought, as you say, Steph, who we had ahead of us was Chelsea and Arsenal. And once again, I don't know if this is down to Harry. I'm not sure, but he galvanised everyone. And I think he put Modric with Huddleston, I think, in the centre there. Yeah, and very good. We done it. Fair play. Hats off. Another more more rocking nights at the lane again. Unfortunately, lads, we don't have the time to engage in the in all the detailed memories of, of you know. I mean, we'll get into the best moments of, of Crouch Fests and whatever else, and 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 you know, four fours at the Emirates and these galvanising moments in our history. But what we can do is we can look at a few. Yeah, I'm going to ask you when you look at the noughties, Please consult your cheat sheets for this. You will need them. I hope you've done your homework. Give us a player or two that typify Spurs in the noughties for you. Okay, let me go. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat by giving you my um, my best Spurs eleven of the decade. And There's a point to this, so, so indulge me here for a moment. So Robinson in goal, Steve Carr, um, Sol Campbell, Ledley King, Christian Zieger, Aaron Lennon, Luka Modric, Michael Carrick, David Ginola, Robbie Keane, Dimitar Berbatov with the foe on the bench. Um, that is a pretty... A pretty good start in 11 that we had there. The tragedy is though that hardly any of those players played together in any sort of combination. So we went from Carrick being sold, then signing Berbatov, who was, came along for two years. The summer he was sold, Modric turned up. So those three never played together. So again, there's lots of good players, but they were never quite there all at the same time. For me though, the decade is about Robbie Keane and Jermaine Defoe. They are pretty much the mainstays throughout there. Of course, they, they grab the headlines because they score goals, but Robbie Keane was a, was a different type of player when, when we bought him. Um, he developed into, you know, one of our best goal scorers of that era and he, he definitely took us on an 11. And again, if you just indulge me for one more moment, this is a player who probably wouldn't get mentioned otherwise. You mentioned Toda earlier. Here's another name for you. At the old White Hart Lane, there was, um, this is when I used to work there. There was, in, in one of the lounges, there was a big board up there that showed you the list of every single Spurs player that went on to represent their country while they were registered for Tottenham Hotspur. So you've got all the greats going back through the years, um, you know, Jimmy Greaves, um, going all the way back, back through. But the one name that appears in that decade is Emil Halfredson who was one of those players that um, Frank Arneson signed. And it was one of those, he said, throw the mud at the wall and, and see what sticks. Uh, he was a young Icelandic player who was highly rated. Never got into our first team, but whilst he was with Spurs, he made his debut for the Iceland national team. And therefore, he sits on that wall of fame of international players. Dimitar Berbatov and Luka Modric are the beauty. I think Nuruddin Naibet and Edgar David were the necessity. And I think Michael Dawson was the heart. And Jermaine Defoe, I would put up there with him. And those would be the those would be the players that I think of the most when I think of the Nordies, with special mention for that wonderful six foot seven maestro Peter Crouch. I can't believe you haven't mentioned Ledley. Because I knew that you were going to, and I didn't want to take your name from you. If I mentioned Ledley, you would have said, Oh, I can't believe you said Ledley. I was gonna say him. So you oh, can thank me. me later. You had Ledley, Ricky. Yeah, I was going to say, Ledley, give him a little mention, yeah. To, to, it's a joint so we've effort. actually gone from me, from me supposedly being forgetful, for, to you hogging everyone's uh, number one choice. But anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> the thing I loved about Ledley was not that he was a world-class defender, and that is what we would all dream about these days. He would make it into any team. It was just his sheer... Um, will to continue playing for us, really. The whole, the whole in the swimming pool all week, 
maybe turns up on Friday, does a little bit of an hour or two on the training field. Harry gives him like the old nod, you know, does he get the nod back from Ledley? And then just rolls him out on a Saturday on the field and, and is man of the match again. And it's just, I just find that remarkable that a professional footballer of that level can continue on doing that. And he done it for us. And it's great that he's now ended up being an ambassador mm. and all that as well. And we, we remember him fondly and we keep remembering him. That's a really great thing. Um, yeah. Anything to add out, Milo? I'll just chuck in Robbo as a, uh, Paul Robinson as a, as a quick end there. It's, um, it was fun. I think I'll, I'll be touching on this probably in a minute on kind of highlights and lowlights of the decade. It, it was fun. I loved the relationship between him and the fans, you know, the England's number one thing going on and, you know, you know just, it was fun during that period. And um, I was there when he scored against uh, Ben Foster. Brilliant. Can I just quickly mention one more? And it was, um, and this is just so typical Spurs where a player comes along and you just get hyped for him and every week you're hoping he's going to play. And that was Mido. Just beat me too because I was going to throw in a couple of cultists. I mean, Mido, Benny is definitely one. Benny Asuakoto, absolutely. And and Jorelio Gomez, who I absolutely adored. Even Mm. when he was gaffing, I adored him and I still adore him and I still love him. And you know the other thing? (laughs) Go on. That warm-up routine with Gomez where he'd jump up and get get his um, armpit over the crossbar. It was just, it was absolutely, yeah. 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 And there was some, you know, another thing about the Nordies before we get on to wrapping up here, and I know that we're pushing the clock, but who cares for five seconds? We've got to say this. There were some brilliant songs. There were some great songs, right? I mean, Martin Yol, he's got no hair, but we don't care. I mean, what, you know, old Ledley, Ledley, he's only got one knee. I mean, we, I don't know. I thought that the Terrace Choir of the Nordies was in superlative form for most of the time, and I was super proud to be part of it on, on many occasions, as I'm sure you all were as well. So special mention to all of us for making the Nordies memorable. And let me wrap this up with a couple of very simple questions. Aside from Crouchfest at the Eastlands, can you name what you feel our turning point was in becoming a club with regular European aspirations again? I've said mine, which really, which was, again, I think it was, it really was that point with uh, Pleat and then on to Arneson and Yol coming in where I think the club just professionalised itself really and started looking like a modern football club with a modern attitude again. And everything that followed after that was as a result of that period, I think. Yeah. Um, for me, it was the summer of 2005 when Martin Yon had his first year. We signed Edgar Davids and we went and won the Peace Cup in Korea. Um, and I say this with, with, with a smile on my face because I, I know what people would be thinking about winning the Peace Cup, but we beat Leon in the final of that competition. And you could start to see here that this was, this was, you were starting to see the hallmark of a Martin Yold team and you were starting to see the footprint of a team that was slightly more about the collective rather than individual players. And the momentum from that, I think, rolled into that 2005 6 season where, had it not been for Lasagna, would have qualified for the Champions League. Yeah, I think um, with the regular finishes with Martin that he Brawlers just took us into the UEFA Cup. But before that, we were just hoping that we were going to qualify through the Fair Play League, I think, wasn't we? Just grasping onto that straw every year. And I think it helps if you, I mean, I think going back to the relationship between Martin and the fans, I think that really does help. It, the sense of belief just runs through the club. And I think, without being able to prove it scientifically, I think that might well 
give you some extra points every year. Mm. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double up or half double up with Gareth. I think signing Edgar Davids was the moment that we became a club with proper European aspirations. We had signed who I consider to be an absolute world beater of his of his of his type uh, and a man who refused to yeah, he wasn't going to punt about waiting for the fair play rules to come in. He wanted to kick us across the line quite literally sometimes to being a European club and I felt it was a real signal that we were moving forward. And much like we do positive one positive one negative, I'm going to try and restrict you to giving us, you know, your best moment of the noughties and your worst moment of the noughties in 30 seconds. And if in that 30 seconds you could squeeze in more, go for it. Who wants to take on this time challenge? I'll go first. So I've spent most of the pod talking about it. My high point was the run-in in 05-06 when we first qualified for Europe through the league since, what, the first time since the 80s and ignoring the Sanya gate and, and kind of the bittersweet end to it. During that run-in, so there was a confidence about us that we were going to do it and, you know, you talked about the kind of terrace choir stuff. I, my memory, memories of that run-in is kind of good weather through the spring and us singing we're all going on a European tour every week and just the place bouncing and and it being you know really good fun and I suppose the worst moment again it's one we've touched on I think your sacking and the manner of his sacking and you know as you've already said Steph he was no saint and you know we know that he was sniffing around and probably a lot of the stuff that we criticize Redknapp for probably applies for Yo in that regard as well but it was just a really sad ending to it and you know as, as we touched on earlier on with you know Potch from Yol sacking the, the the ones that you're closest to, the ones that you relate to most, the ones that hit hardest, and yeah, I'd, I'd just rather that they leave with dignity at the end of a season rather than halfway through a game. Yeah. Oh yeah, just to pick up on that, Milo, I think I remember that game when we was playing Catafe, and there was that buzz around the ground, and then there was even um, camera shots, wasn't there, of people. What, in the director's box and that with their phones out texting messaging it was just a really horrible thing to uh, someone that we love so much for their demise to come about but yeah picking out just individual things uh remember the um, city cup game we lost 4-3 <laughs> when Joey Barton got sent off at half time that was an all-time classic wasn't it and i mentioned the Portsmouth game already but i think to round off the decade with the i think i'm allowed to mention it in this in this question with the crouch fest goal at the Etihad is really is a way that is what a way to sort of finish fucking the decade because you know fucking you night. know the games that are stepped forward for your club and that was a game that, that was a step was forward one of the, the greatest away ends I've ever been a part of. Fuck, I absolutely just breathtaking. Sorry, I've cut in on your memory. Carry on. I can't help myself. I'll reel myself in. No, I felt exactly oh. the same. I think I was really lucky because I got a ticket because I think it was meant to play City early in the season. I don't know, but we don't have postponed. the time. I don't know about that. Let's get into the moment. The moment oh, yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm Come wasting time The moment there. itself was just so brilliant, wasn't it? It was breathtaking. It, it took your breath away What it just yeah. when it went in. Yeah, you've yeah. never seen an adult drink a, whiskey, a flask of whiskey as quickly as I did on the way home in celebration and talk about singing anyway uh but and and worst... um, well the, the Portsmouth semi was just tragic and that Man City game wasn't great either as I say but um but we had the Chelsea and the and the Arsenal five ones as well let's not forget them I was going to mention both those semi-finals I'm going to go for a couple of banter games though so during 4-4 at the 4-4 at the Emirates when we were 4-2 down going into stoppage time another um, fucking belting night out oh my god 
Oh, the joy. That obviously followed the two points from eight games start and Harry coming in and Cesc Fabregas um, saying beforehand that Arsenal's women would beat Spurs at the moment. Um, winning 4-3 at West Ham was another good banter one as well with Stel Terry. Um, individual moment, Freddie Canuti scoring a volley from 35 yards against Everton at White Hart Lane was was incredible. Um, worst moments, do you know, there's, there's a few of them. Arsenal winning the league at White Hart Lane, Campbell signing for them. Losing two four nil to Chelsea twice in five days. Berbatov and Keane being sold, but I'm going to go. My my worst one was actually losing four nil at Southampton in the FA Cup third round in 2003, and that was probably the moment it was up for Hoddle. Best moments: Crouchfest, just immense, beating Chelsea two one in 2006 for our first win over them since 1990, uh, and beating Chelsea in the Carling Cup final in 2008. Worst memories: Lasagna Gate, terrible, selling Keane after losing Berber and bringing in Fraser Campbell. And I have to round out by saying the one that I think has escaped everyone. Uh, losing the Carling Cup final in 2009 on penalties to Man United in a game where I actually felt yeah. we were uh, well their equals and I think it would have been uh, a really important moment for us, I think, to win back-to-back trophies. So that was a really, really poor one. But I will just add my saddest personal moment was when we lost 4-2 to Chelsea on the 13th of September 2003 as I knew it was going to be Glenn's last game and it wasn't going to work. But as we've discussed, it led to such brilliant things in the long run. So, as we've discovered, as we always discover at these moments, you know, we could do another hour on this. We barely mentioned the five ones against Arsenal and Chelsea. Chaps, thank you very much. The noughties, somewhat encapsulated, to be continued, let's hope. Right? Yep. yep. Okay. Thank you, chaps. The noughties summed up. That's it. See you later. Cheers, Dave. Okay. Awesome. And uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. So give us a, f- a follow. Say hello. If you like our pod, please tell your friends and leave a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify. As always, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week.